All right, so <clears throat> if you were here last week, you heard me say that we're in between sermon series right now. And uh, we are going to be starting a series on the book of Ephesians. So if you want to start reviewing that in the next couple weeks, I encourage you to do that. Um, but we're not going to start that until May 22nd. I'm not quite ready to do that. So uh, each week until then, we are kind of just going as the Spirit leads. And this week, I felt led to a story in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 9 in the Gospel of Mark. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to make your way there, starting in verse 14. So, one of the reasons that I was led to this story is because I was reading about some statistics about religious belief in America. Uh, this is from the Pew Research Center, uh, a respectable data organization, uh, which says that over the last decade in America, uh, the number of Americans identifying as Christian has declined from 78% to 63%. So that's a 12-point decrease over 10 years, which is a, a significant shift. And at the same time, over the last 10 years, the number of Americans identifying as non-religious increased from 16% to 29%. So that's a 13-point increase. So what that tells us is that in this country, there is a trend towards what's called secularization, uh, which just means not, people being non-religious, uh, not identifying as any particular faith. You can see from these numbers that the people who have stopped identifying as Christian, it's not like they've adopted a different faith. They haven't become Muslim or Buddhist or something like that. By and large, they are now saying, I just don't identify as anything. And uh, that is a trend towards secularization. Now, interestingly, this trend is not universal. Um, we might think, living in our one corner of the world, that this is an indicator of what is going on globally um, and the trends uh, that all people everywhere are going through, which is, which is not true at all. According to the latest report from the Center for Global Christianity uh, at Gordon-Conwell, uh, right now Christianity has a 1.17% growth rate in the world, while uh, non-religion has a 0.52% growth rate. So in any given year, uh, the number of people who are going from not identifying as Christian to identifying as Christian is more than twice the number of people who are going from a religious faith to then saying, I don't believe anything. Okay, so more than twice. Uh, and uh, according to the same report, the number of people identifying as Christian has been growing rapidly in Africa. Africa has a 2.77% growth rate and Asia which has a 1.5% growth rate in people identifying as Christian. But in our corner of the world, the trend is toward secularization. People today are less likely than they were 10 years ago to say, I believe in Jesus or I identify as a Christian. Now, we might ask, well, why is that? What's going on 
here? And I think there are multiple answers to that question, and I would caution any of us from being too quick to rush to judgment and pin it on one thing or you know, one person or one movement or something like that. Um, I did not bring up these statistics to scare us or to make us angry or to make us start casting blame or anything like that. Uh, I, brought, I brought these statistics up because I think this story has something to tell us, those of us who are living in a cultural context where there's growing skepticism and there are fewer people who see faith in Christ as something that is useful or relevant to their lives. I think this story has something to say to us living in that context, okay? So, uh, let's read the story with that in mind. Um, but before we do, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful spring morning. And we thank you for the chance to come together around the scriptures and around your table. And uh, Lord, we just uh, invite you to work in our hearts right now. Help us to turn our attention to you. Uh, help us to focus on what you want to say to us right now. Uh, we welcome you to work in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, before I read the story, let me just set the stage here. Uh, right before this, something happened which, which is known as Jesus' transfiguration. Uh, Jesus had just gone up on a mountain with three of his closest disciples, and when he was up there, uh, his, his glory was revealed to them in a way that it hadn't been before. He became radiant. It says that his clothes became dazzling, dazzling white. Um, and while he was up there, uh, this, this cloud of God's presence enveloped them. And a voice, the voice of the Father from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. So right before this, Jesus and these three disciples had this incredible mountaintop, literally a mountaintop, spiritual experience. And then they come down from the mountain and this is what happens. When they came down to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. Ah, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Okay, so let's stop here. Are any of us surprised to hear Jesus talk like this? He sounds annoyed, exasperated, frustrated, tired, burnt out, right? But when you think about it, he has some good reasons for feeling this way. You know, he's just had this glorious moment on the mountain, this moment of peace. And then he, he comes down, and what does he immediately find? Well, he finds three things. Number one... He finds the religious establishment arguing with his disciples. Why are they arguing with his disciples? Well, we don't know exactly what they were arguing about, but we can be confident they were trying to undermine Jesus' authority. They were arguing against Jesus 
being who he said he was, having the authority of God. That is what they were always doing, right? So, and then second, there's a man looking for help because his son is possessed by a demon. And third, his disciples haven't been able to cast out the demonic spirit, which he had already given them authority in the book of Mark to do that, to cast out evil spirits, right? So this, this looks bad because if Jesus' disciples can't do what he gave them authority to do, that makes him look like he doesn't actually have authority. That seems to be a point in favor of the religious leaders who are arguing against Jesus, right? So in this moment, Jesus experiences the hostility of the religious establishment. He experiences the cruelty of the demonic and his disciples' own failure. So, so much for basking in the glow of the transfiguration, right? And so Jesus expresses his frustration, his frustration with evil and with the brokenness of the world. He says, how long do I have to put up with this? If we have ever found ourselves trying to push against the forces of darkness in the world and within ourselves, we should be able to appreciate what Jesus is expressing here, right? How long do I have to put up with this? The book of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, Yet he did not sin. And we see that in this passage. Jesus understands our frustration. When we feel like the forces of evil are overwhelming, Jesus understands he can empathize with that. When we feel the temptation to give up, Jesus can empathize with that. But we also have in Jesus an example. Despite the temptation to give up, Jesus did not. Right? He kept resisting evil. He kept putting up with evil. He kept bearing it all the way to the point of bearing the cross. And he keeps bearing it here. Right? He invites the father to bring the, the boy who is suffering to him. And then this is what happens, continuing in verse 20. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. So, 
this poor father describes his son's condition. It's something that he has suffered from all of his life. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus seems disappointed by that phrasing. If you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Now, it's important for us to recognize that when Jesus talks about believing, he has a specific kind of belief in mind. Uh, There's two mistakes that we can make when we hear Jesus saying, you need to believe. So, the first thing is to assume that Jesus is saying something like, it's good to believe without evidence. It's good to believe things that sound crazy. Uh, that there's something that's virtuous about doing that. You know, this is the error of thinking that says, if there is a preacher on TV selling miracle water, and who says, if you give me money, I'll send you this miracle water, and it will heal your back pain, that there is something, uh, there's something virtuous or good about believing that that's true, Right? Jesus says, everything is possible for him who believes, so I just got to believe that if I buy this water, it's going to heal me. Right? Of course, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not telling us to believe anything or anyone who makes remarkable claims, even if they're using his name when they're doing it. The second mistake is to think that Jesus is saying that anything is possible if we just believe what we want will happen. Um... This error assumes that Jesus is like a motivational speaker, right? And he's just, he's saying, you just got to believe. You just got to reach for the stars. You just got to envision your future, right? Envision what you want. Set the intention and then move towards it. And then it will become reality. But that isn't what Jesus means either. So the belief that Jesus is talking about is not a lack of critical thinking. And it's not positive thinking, it's belief in him. That's important. Confidence in him, trust in him. Jesus is saying, everything is possible for those who trust me. Now, we should probably recognize... Possible is not the same thing as guaranteed. Okay? If we are trusting in Jesus, it is possible that we will be healed of a terminal illness, miraculously. But it's not guaranteed, at least this side of heaven. So we should keep that in mind. Okay? Don't just assume that Jesus is saying, hey, if you just believe in me enough, then anything will happen and you'll be, you can count on that. But Jesus does want us to think that if we trust in him, the scope of what is possible in our lives expands dramatically. We can live with a kind of hope and expectation that we cannot have apart from him. The father is struggling to believe that it is possible that his son can be freed from this demonic spirit that has tortured him all of his life. And Jesus calls him to trust, yes, that is possible. The forces of darkness are not stronger than Jesus. 
And then the father delivers what is one of my favorite lines in all of the Gospels. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I love that line because it sounds like a contradiction. right? I believe. Help, help me actually believe. It sounds like a contradiction, but I think we can recognize it as very honest and reflecting something that's true about all of us, right? Which is that we are complicated. There's part of us that believes, and there's part of us that doubts. And sometimes those parts of us are in conversation with each other, wrestling with each other, right? And we want to believe, but at the same time, there's a part of us that's struggling to believe. Belief and doubt are not mutually exclusive. They, they tend to go together. And what we need to notice is that that expression of that contradiction, you know, I believe, help my unbelief, that is enough for Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, I'm sorry, but you need to be 100% certain before I can heal your son. Right? He just drives out the demon. In this skeptical culture, this increasingly skeptical culture that we're living in, people need to know that they don't need to be certain for Jesus to work in their lives. Right? The, the father admits that he is not certain, but he wants to believe. And he believes enough to act. That's key. Right? His act of faith is that he brings his son to Jesus. He believes enough to go to Jesus in his desperation, and say, please, if you can, help. And although Jesus encourages him to have more faith than that, he doesn't wait for the man to be certain before healing his son. Right? The fact that he brought him is enough. There's another place in the Gospels where Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Now, it's always concerned me a little that I haven't been able to do that. Um, no, I'm kidding. Jesus' point there is not that we're going to be able to like change geography just by speaking a word. But his point there is that if you just have a little tiny bit of faith, God can work with that and do incredible things through that, things that you would never think were possible. If we can just trust him enough to pray, even if we're not sure that he's listening, that's enough. He can work with and if we take those baby steps of faith, over time we, we may find that that mustard seed is growing. It's growing into a tree. And that tree is growing roots, and the roots are going down deep. And our belief is overcoming our unbelief. But that process can take time. And that's okay. As long as we have enough faith to come to Jesus in our desperation, God can work with that. 
If we can just, just admit, you know, I've got problems and I need help. And Jesus, I believe you can do something. I'm trusting that you can do something. Help my unbelief. That's enough. The other part of this story that I think is very relevant for us in our cultural context is the end. Right? The disciples, they want to know, why couldn't we drive this demon out? Jesus says, this kind can come out only by prayer. So what that tells us is that the disciples were trying to drive out the demon in their own strength. Right? Prayer is all about connection with God, right? dependence on God. So apparently when they tried to drive out this demon, their frame of mind was operating independent of God. They didn't have that attitude of humility. They thought that there was something within themselves that could cast this evil out. And so that didn't work. And here's what I think this means for us. If we want to be effective in driving evil out of the world, we have to have that attitude of dependence on God. We have to have that attitude that says, on my own, I am powerless against this evil. If we want to make the forces of evil tremble, we have to be the kind of people who are in relationship with God, prayerful people. That's key. You know, I said earlier that we live in a culture that's not just having a harder time believing in Jesus, it's having a harder time seeing belief in Jesus as useful. Right? Many people today think, well, if we really want to make the, better, the world a better place, if I really want to make my life better, why bother with God? Why bother with things like prayer? That's not practical. Right? We should be practical. But we should hear Jesus saying to us, through his response to his disciples, contrary to what you might think, some evils can only be cast out through relationship with God. Some things can only get better through prayer. If we really want to make earth more like heaven, we can't do it just through our own creativity and wisdom. We need God. We need relationship with God, closeness with God. We need a heart that depends on God. Back before Easter, we looked at the passage where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will produce much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's the same idea that he's emphasizing here, right? If we want goodness to come out of our lives, we have to remain connected to our Creator. When we disconnect from our relationship with God, we become like a Christmas tree. Christmas tree looks really nice for a while, might seem like, you know, it's healthy, but give it enough time, what happens? It dries out, the needles fall off, it's a fire hazard. And, and the same is true with us. If we disconnect from our creator, from our source of life, at first, things might seem fine, but over time, we wither. And our capacity to drive out evil withers. So, 
how do we reverse this trend in our culture? This trend toward people finding faith in Christ less believable and less relevant. First, we have to recognize that we cannot reverse the trend in our own strength. Sounds paradoxical, but that's clear to me from this story. The key to changing the trend is not some like creative program or an argument. It's being people of prayer and worship. That's it. And then secondly, we have to recognize that all we need to do is take steps of faith. We don't have to be 100% certain. We don't, feel like, we don't have to feel like we have it all figured out, right? All of us are a mixture of belief and doubt, and that is okay. If we can pray, I believe, help my unbelief, that is enough. All that is needed is that little seed. That is what we as the church need to remember when we're struggling with belief. And that is what we need to share with the world, too, that might be struggling to believe. Like, look, you don't have to have it all figured out. You just need to start putting one foot in front of the other, going to, going to Jesus, trying prayer, trying worship, and watch the seed grow. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that in this story, you are merciful to this man who's struggling with doubt. And Lord, I, I pray that if any of us are in his shoes this morning, that we would sense your graciousness, your patience with us, and at the same time that we would hear you challenging us. If I can challenging us to trust you. To trust that you have the power, that you um, know what is true, that you have the authority to drive out evil in our, in our lives. Lord, help us to realize that there is nowhere else that we can go for that evil to be driven out. So, Father, we, uh, we just ask that you would increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.